The technology likely to have the greatest impact on the next few decades has arrived. You can start building completely new concepts for payments that we've never thought of. Move the need for a financial intermediary to transact value. Bitcoin and the blockchain have an amazing future. This is going to transform society. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Crypto Authority Podcast. My name's Felix, and I'm coming at you today with a really special episode featuring Monsieur Mahmoudov. So anyone who's been on crypto Twitter would have undoubtedly seen some of Monsieur's work. It's being retweeted amongst the entire space pretty much any time he tweets. And um, the reason why I wanted to get Monsieur on the show today was to analyse and to evaluate whether Bitcoin can serve as an efficient form of money at some point in the future. And obviously, within this exploration, we've had to delve into the history of money, the incumbent monetary system which we have today, which is the fiat-based system, and then try to analyze whether Bitcoin has a part to play in the future of the monetary system. So without further ado, this is Bitcoin is Sound Money featuring Masir Mahmoudov. I hope you enjoy it. All right, guys, I've got Monsieur with me today. And the general aim of this conversation is to answer what is this strange, multi-defined concept that we refer to as money and how Bitcoin may potentially be an improved version of the money that we have today, which is fiat. So, um, Monsieur, firstly, thank you for coming on the show, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and have a discussion. Thank you for inviting me, man. It's, it's a great pleasure. Awesome. So, Monsieur, you're a student of economics and uh, a quick read of your work and anyone will realize that you're that you're a well-read person. So, in your opinion, what is money? Well, this is a very um, heavy question and I think that it is no wonder that in today's society, most people cannot really answer this question uh, in a way that is sufficient enough for them to be able to appreciate uh, what is Bitcoin, uh, what is the money that they use in their everyday life, what is sound money, what is unsound money, and how all that plays out in our life and the huge impact that it has on all of us. So I think that first we have to understand that uh, in order to understand money, you really need to have a un, have an, a somewhat of an understanding of monetary history. You need to understand what the functions of money are and what are the characteristics that enable that money to serve those functions. And unless you are able to understand all of those things, you are going to be at a huge loss and you won't be able to really evaluate the uh, quality of the money that you are paid in, that you use, that you hold your wealth in, and the, the money that you operate with uh, in your everyday life. And uh, most importantly, people who don't understand what money is, they can never really be able to uh, thoroughly appreciate or for, criticize, for that matter, Bitcoin and what it stands for. So I think before anyone delves into attacking Bitcoin or uh loving bitcoin you should they should really t answer this question for themselves what is money and uh if you don't mind i think we should first of all maybe delve a little bit deeper into the monetary history and just go back in, in the into the past and look what kinds of money 
uh, people have been using throughout history and how that has evolved throughout time. Absolutely. We exchanged notes uh, prior to recording. And yeah, I think I think what we both have here is fantastic. So let's go through it. Awesome. So uh, I think that the predominant theory holds uh, that before people use money as we know it today, as, in terms of like as, as an indirect exchange, people were engaged in direct exchange, which is also known as barter. So they would basically exchange a good A for good B. But as anyone can imagine, this creates a numerous uh, list of limitations uh, as perhaps the thing that you have and you want to exchange for something else is not wanted by the, by the person that you're exchanging with. Or perhaps the thing that you want is not divisible uh, or perhaps it is perishable. So there are all these kinds of problems. And uh, the main one is known as the problem of coincidence of wants. Like chances are that, let's say you produce shoes and you want to buy apples. Chances are that uh, the person who is selling apples doesn't really need that many shoes or doesn't want your shoes per se at that point in time and is not incentivized to exchange their apples for your shoes. So that creates huge inefficiency. So there are other uh, problems like coincidence of time frames. Like I already mentioned, like per the things are perishable, like his apples might not last that long whereas your shoes last much longer. And uh, and also scales. Like, for example, you want to buy a house, and if you if you make shoes, then, like, how many pairs of shoes would you need to trade in order to buy a house? And I don't think really anyone needs, like, 10,000 pairs of shoes. Like, what are they going to do with that? Uh, so all these different uh, problems lead us to, let people in history to come to some kind of consensus whereby they would use a an a good uh, that would allow them to engage in indirect exchange uh, so that they wouldn't have to trade good A for good B. So they would just be able to use some kind of standardized good. Let's say uh, in some cultures it was seashells, in others it was cattle, etc., etc. And basically the society would converge to that standard and everyone would just use that good. And uh, through this like process of like natural self-selection, Different cultures and different people realize that there are certain goods that perform the role of money better than others. And uh, here is where we come to the characteristics of something that makes up money. And like, if you like, there are some obvious ones. Like, obviously, if you want to be able to use something as money, it has to be portable. You have to be able to carry it around easily. You don't want it to weigh too much or too little for that matter, because like, otherwise, it's too small to be used in day trade. Uh, it has to be divisible. Like, for example, cows are not very divisible. So if you, like, I mean, you'd have to kill a cow. So uh, that goes away. Uh, it, it has to be verifiable. You have to be able to know that, like, oh, okay, so you're giving me a cow. Like, I can tell that this is a real cow. This is not something that I'm, I don't want to trade for. And th these ones are kind of obvious, but perhaps something that uh, is a characteristic that is more important that people kind of, without even realizing it necessarily, but kind of came to re, uh, appreciate naturally is the idea of uh, scarcity. And uh, more precisely, it is the idea of stock-to-flow ratio. Uh, and this idea is basically the fact that... So the stock is uh, basically the existing stockpiles of uh, that good. And the flow is the additional... 
supply that is created, for example, every year. So the higher the stock-to-flow ratio of any particular good, the better it can serve as a money. Let's say, let's say there's, a, I don't know, a, a thousand tons of something, or, or like, let's say there's a billion tons of something that has already been dug out and we use it as, as, uh, as money, for example. Even if tomorrow uh, somebody, the supplier, the producer of this good that we use as money is able to find, I don't know, a, uh, a place where they can dig out more of this good, chances are that they're not going to be able, like even if they dig out like, I don't know, a million tons worth of this good, uh, that million is going to pale in comparison to the existing stockpiles that is already in the billions. For example, this is all hypothetical. So although like we have to understand that like it's the, the idea of money, uh, the idea of anything, for, for it to be valuable, it has to be scarce. Like people only want things that are limited in their supply. If, so, if, if you can increase the supply of something ad nauseum, that means that every time you increase the, the supply, whatever uh, portion of the supply is held by a particular person becomes devalued, meaning that their portion of the supply shrinks and thereby depreciates in value. So that, that is something that is happening like every day in our world, like for example, with the dollar, but we're, we're going get, to get to that later. Uh, do, do you have any questions so far? Before I continue. Yeah, I was just going to say, we'll get to that later because I think a stock to flow ratio analysis is imperative for any kind of grading system when it comes to grading money. So yeah. And we can also touch on Nixon, how he depegged gold and the US dollar and altered the stock to flow ratio of the US dollar and consequently all of the other fiat currencies. But like you said, we'll talk about Bitcoin later because we haven't even mentioned Bitcoin yet. We're still talking about money. Oh yeah, we're, we're far away from from it. We were like year, hundreds of years away. <laughs> um, so, so eventually, people came to realize that like, if they use cattle or if they use seashells, there can always be somebody or uh, somebody who can bring increase the supply by I don't know maybe bringing more of these seashells from another island that you didn't know existed before. So thereby, they would be able to uh inflate away the the existing uh money that has been used and thereby take away uh that wealth from the people so eventually everyone came to the realization that uh the scarce metals in in the crust of the earth such as gold and silver uh performed the role of money better than anything else and i mean you don't like this it's very important to understand that like this realization is not necessarily like it doesn't have to really happen on the conscious level for every single person. It's just something that like you realize that if you hold your wealth in seashells, like eventually somebody is going to come to your island with, uh, I don't know, with uh, 10 times amount of seashells that there are on your island and your wealth is basically diluted and uh, now you are less likely to have the necessary means to survive. And it's like a, it's like a, it's like natural selection almost. Uh, it doesn't have to Absolutely. consciously happen in every mind of every single person who uses that money. Absolutely. There are there are plenty of examples of those from the Yapese people to West Africa with the beads. Yep. Yeah, I, I may be accelerating a bit too many centuries forward here, but again, with fiat currencies, how the, a new issuance of them or an expansion of them has devalued them. But yeah, sorry, Monsieur, I've interrupted you. No, of course. 
you know how we mentioned stock to flow ratio and it is a known fact that the stock to flow ratio of gold has always historically been much higher than that of silver so meaning i think on average the annual supply growth rate of uh, gold is around one and a half to two percent whereas that of uh, silver which which is second best after gold silver is around like 20 percent so which like makes sense like obviously you want to hold your wealth in something that only uh, increases its supply by one and a half rather than 20 but the reason why people one of the reasons why people were using silver for example instead of gold was because like the value per unit of weight for gold was much much higher than for silver meaning that like that is not necessarily very practical because like when you go out i don't know to the to to the market and you want to buy some fruits or vegetables you you would have to like scrape off like i don't know dusts of gold <laughs> which doesn't make any sense it's impossible to do so instead people would use silver and also sometimes copper which served this role better like the everyday uh trade role much better than gold whereas they would hold and transact large uh, amounts of value and wealth uh, in gold. So eventually, with the with the popularization of paper money, this the, this technology of paper money kind of uh, almost made a huge impact on uh, the need to use silver because now people could basically hold the their gold in vaults. And instead, they would just use these uh, paper receipts, IOUs, which were redeemable for the underlying uh, gold. And they would just trade with that. And whenever somebody wanted to get their paper receipts and then take it, redeem them for gold, they could do that. But the problem with that was that most people just held their gold in the vaults and never really took out uh, the, the gold because they just thought that, well, like, what's the point, right? Do you, you just everyone trades in in paper money and if you ever need to then you sure you can go and take out your gold but nobody really needed to most of the time and this created a pretty important problem uh as the goldsmiths they realized that they could be making a lot more money by loaning out uh money in excess of the gold reserves that they had in the vaults so let's say they the goldsmith has 100 kilograms of uh gold in their in their uh, vault but they would basically loan out paper receipts that represented 500 kilograms of gold, assuming that the owners of the real 100 kilograms of gold wouldn't all come back to the bank at the same time and withdraw their gold, which they a lot of the time they didn't. But if they were to do that, that would create a run on a bank, and that would make the the goldsmiths, which later became banks, it would make them it would uh, insolvent. And this phenomenon is known as uh, fractional reserve banking that we often uh, bring up when we discuss Austrian economics and Bitcoin, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, this is a huge uh, disadvantage of gold, the idea of centralization in a vault problem, it's called, where the gold just sits in the vault. And not, not only is the, there's a problem with the, with the run on banks and fractional reserves, but also the fact that most of the gold just sits in one place or in very centralized uh, areas that means that it's very very vulnerable to some kind of co-option or takeover by some kind of authority and that causes the that to be uh, that money to be much more centralized which once again is not an ideal is very is very far from ideal uh, in terms of characteristics of money the, the more decentralized something is the better it serves as money and uh, as you already mentioned, in the 19th and 20th century, we 
uh, basically uh, underwent this uh, the gold standard, which lasted for some time. And it was basically a monetary system under which, as you mentioned, the money that a country or a bank, anyone could have, uh, had to be equal to the value of gold reserves that, that they had. So that means that you can't just like at whim increase the money supply. If you were to increase the money supply, you would have to get more gold in the first place. But then in the 20th century, I think it was in the First World War, where uh, uh, Seyfedee talks a lot about this stuff in his uh, book called the, book, uh, the Bitcoin Standard, which is a great read. Um, how during the World War One, a lot of countries kind of like depegged and not depegged, but kind of moved away from the gold standard so that they w- were able to better sponsor their war efforts. Uh, and that is one of the reasons uh, why World War One lasted so much longer. Everyone w- was expecting it to be like a summer skirmish, like most of the wars that preceded it. Then we fast forward to 1971, where Richard Nixon severed all of the ties with gold. Uh, so like during the middle of 19- 20th century, it was just like the dollar that became redeemable for gold so that everyone else could basically trust the United States that they would redeem their money for gold and eventually gold, uh, Nixon got rid of that and now we live in a world where your money your dollars are not really backed by anything it's just and the problem is that th- because there's no gold standard that means that there's no sound money per se and your money is easy money meaning that its supply increases and you don't even know about it it increases you can't predict how much it will increase it, it is basically controlled by group of people be that the fed or the treasury or all, all these institutions i think before we go any further is there, is there anything well i think that brings us on to a, a good point which is the deflationary benefit that cryptocurrencies like bitcoin boast the fact that their currency cannot be expanded and um the purchasing power of the incumbent monetary system or the currency being used by the proletariat is not devalued and um, i think the most extreme case that people mention time and time after again, but it, it still remains extremely relevant and extremely sad is the case of Venezuela, where their currency is just in its, in a very literal sense, has just gone to shit. The, the cost of living in Venezuela has just risen to extortionately high prices, whereby it's more expensive now to travel to work than to receive your monthly wage. So um, yeah, I think, I think we can, get onto Bitcoin now and how the the different characteristics of Bitcoin uh, serves as sound money. But before we do that, I, I want to conclude the question of what is money with, you've already mentioned him, but Cypher Dean in his book, The Bitcoin Standard, which you recommended, and I'm going to further recommend to our users because it's an, absolute, it's an absolute brilliant book and it's often called The Bitcoin Bible. And his definition of money is money is a good purchase that is not to be consumed or to be employed in the production of other goods, but to use to be used solely um, to be exchanged for other goods. And obviously, as you discuss, um, a bunch of other trades have to have to be um, present, which is it can't the money supply can't be expanded. And I think that judging by what I've read from your work and following you on Twitter, um, the most important trait that you think a sound money system should have is um, whether it's scarce, whether it's rare. But how do you think Bitcoin 
obviously Bitcoin can only have 21 million Bitcoins. And that's arguably for many people, the most beneficial, the most attractive trait that it boasts. But how do you think Bitcoin fares in other characteristics or um, other desirable traits of money like divisibility, transferability, um, durability, fungibility, uh, verifiability and um, one that I don't think Bitcoin fares very too well in, but we can discuss this a bit, is established history, because obviously we've only been here for 10 years compared to uh, compared to gold that has been used for millennia now. And um, another one, another trait that you touched on briefly there was um, prone to exploitation. And I think that um, as the Bitcoin network grows over time, it's... Um, its path towards decentralization is just going to become more apparent and it's going to grow stronger and stronger and it's going to be it's going to become harder to exploit the network and uh make it more censorship resistant as such so i've i've kind of waffled on here Masir, but basically i want to get your thoughts on how bitcoin is an evolution of previous money systems and how it fares um in a grading system of the Austrian school of economics and the Austrian philosophy, which is the philosophy that you adhere to, if I'm, um, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so I think Bitcoin uh, scores as sound money very well. And it's a matter of time that we realize this more and more. But I think first we need to understand that in, this, in the world that we live in today, there exists over 180 currencies in across like 200 countries but the reason for that is it's actually quite an anomaly because like why why are there so many different currencies like wouldn't the world be more efficient if everyone just used the same uh measuring tool the same standard so to speak like back in the day like at least gold everyone knew that gold was uh worth this much and everyone tried to base their system off of that but today is different because we don't have a free market for currencies. But Bitcoin is different because like its digital nature allows it to really transcend all of these physical uh, limitations that the, that the physical traditional legacy system is subject to. So the way I think to think about gold is, I mean, it's so much more than just this. But like for somebody who is getting who is new to Bitcoin and who understands like the value proposition that gold used to offer. I think Bitcoin is is often referred to as digital gold, and that kind of makes sense because it maintains and actually improves upon most of the gold's properties that we talked about, like including scarcity, including unfordable costliness. But given its digital nature, Bitcoins are much more divisible, so we don't have that problem with needing like silver, for example, or needing paper receipts that represent any amount of uh, bitcoins we can simply use satoshis which make it much better it is a lot more portable you don't you can carry whatever amount of uh, wealth in your brain uh, through any border through anywhere anywhere you want and not have to carry i don't know huge suitcases of money or uh, huge uh, cars with uh, huge transportation costs if you were to transport gold for example just to stop you there Masir, what do you mean by you can go through a border or you can just store your bitcoin in your brain obviously i i know the answer like through private keys but just to explain that to some of our other audience me- audience members because it may be a bit of a weird sounding thought that you can store money in your brain yeah it, it definitely is it is very 
it shifts your understanding of wealth and money and the way it is transport transported and transferred. Uh, so there are different types of wallets that you can uh, have your Bitcoin be saved on, like they're cold wallets. There are paper wallets where you have your private keys, etc. And you can also actually have a brain wallet. You can remember a certain uh, uh, certain list of words and basically not have to actually carry a ledger or carry any, any anything for that matter. Uh, and just like and, and the, the the most beautiful thing is the fact that not only is it now much more hard, much more difficult to confiscate that wealth from you, uh, but also it's much more difficult to actually know. Like no nobody really needs has to know. Nobody can really know that you actually have that phrase in your brain, or I don't know, or even on a on, written on a paper somewhere in your bag. And like. The fact that nobody knows that, that means that they're much less likely to actually try to take it away from you, which changes so much. Like, the implications of this are huge. So, yeah, uh, I hope that answered your question. And even with regards to the scarcity, like, soon, I think in the next five years, uh, that stock-to-flow ratio that we talked about recently is going to be higher than for gold, meaning that it's acting even better as as, like, a sound money as something that holds its its uh, value and, and whose supply doesn't increase and that that is the beauty of bitcoin like its inflation rate is constantly uh decreasing meaning it is disinflationary and eventually once all of the bitcoins have been mined it's going to become deflationary meaning that its supply is actually going to decrease because people are are always going to be losing their keys and thereby losing their bitcoins and i think another thing that is important to point out the unique property of Bitcoin is the fact that, to my knowledge, it is the, the first and the only good whose supply is inelastic to changes in demand, meaning that the supply is unresponsive to changes in demand. So like with any, literally any good in the world or any service or I- any money or anything for that matter, if there is a sudden sh- sh- uh, increase uh if there's an upwards shift in demand, that means that the price of that good increases because more people want it, and that's what supply and demand is. But once that happens, the suppliers, they're basically signaled, the producers, they're signaled to increase the supply now that there is an increased demand in order to satisfy that incre- that recently increased demand and thereby make an additional profit and bring the market back to equilibrium. So even with gold, which we, as we already established, uh, proved to be one of the most like sound assets and uh, scarce things with a very high stock-to-flow ratio, even with gold, uh, if, for example, the price of gold were to rise substantially tomorrow, then the suppliers and the producers of gold, they would do their best and they would find ways in order to produce more than that 1.52% because now they have an additional incentive. They are now rewarded by providing that extra gold and they, they would do their best to find ways to do it because now now the potential reward is much higher. Yeah. I think a good example of that and better than gold is the the example of the tulip bubble whereby tulips became very desirable and then the supply as such um, rose in harmony with the demand and um as you rightly pointed out, this 
is impossible with Bitcoin because of the code. Yeah, it's the difficulty adjustment mechanism that really allows for this. Because like, so if you would think about like, let's say the demand for Bitcoin increases tomorrow, like considerably, that means that first the price goes up and now all the miners are incentivized to to devote more uh, hashing hash power and devote more ASICs and more energy to mining Bitcoin because now because its cost has just uh, the price of Bitcoin has increased so they're uh, they have a, an incentive to mine more because it's because of this uh, difficulty adjustment mechanism that Satoshi pioneered that means that even when the hash power increases the number of bitcoins that are uh, mined is still the same which is incredible which means that instead of supply increasing and the, and thereby decreasing the price if there is an increase in demand, only the price can increase. So that, that that creates like so many different positive feedback loops that enable Bitcoin to be monetized and increase in, in increase in its market capitalization so much more easily than other uh, other forms of money or, or any other asset for that matter. Yeah. No. I uh, it, like you said, it's really. I'm trying to think now of another good that behaves like Bitcoin in the sense that. As demand grows, supply doesn't follow. And I'm going to have to get back to you with this or maybe leave it in the description if I think of a good, but I can't. I can't think of a good off the top of my head. So you make a very valid point. Um, Monsieur, would you, um, are you okay to go into the quickfire Q&A section now? Or are there any other points that you want to discuss? By all means, if you have anything else that you want to touch on, go for it. Yeah, like... I think just quickly, uh, I think that we should, uh, if we're going to talk, really say what money is and, talk, and give people a, a glimpse of that, we should realize that like the common question is like, but if Bitcoin is money, then why can't I buy coffee with it? Or why can't I use it in my everyday exchange? And yes, like it's true that the most, uh, like the pinnacle, not the pinnacle, but like the most fundamental property of uh, money is medium of exchange, basically being able to use it to buy different stuff every day. But however, like this process of monetization of any particular good, it takes a very specific uh, route where first something has to basically become a collectible for whatever reason people value it. I don't know, like geeks value Bitcoin. I don't know, somebody who thought that gold was pretty valued it because I don't know, they use it as jewelry, etc, etc. And then it has to first become a store of value, meaning that people have to uh, hold it. Because like people mistakenly believe that hoarders of money are bad. You know how they say, like, this person is a hoarder, he hoards money, he's, he's bad for our society. <laughs> However, this is like, this is like, because people hoard money, that is the only reason why any money or anything else has value in the first place. And is able to maintain that value because people are willing to hold on to that good. Like if nobody was holding dollars or gold or anything, then these things would not have any value. Like the very fact anything is valuable is because people want to hold it. People should be grateful to the so-called hoarders as they actually take out that certain amount of money that they have from the circulating supply, making the money of everyone else more valuable because they decrease the supply, you know. And so this is why the store of value function precedes a the function of medium of exchange and unit of account. So like first Bitcoin has to establish itself as a store of value and only then people are slowly going to start adopting it as a medium of exchange. Like right now, 
while Bitcoin increases its in its market capitalization in its size, there exists like very strong disincentives to spend Bitcoin. Like even if Bitcoin were even like with the Lightning Network and everything, like even if we were able to use it perfectly as a medium of exchange, like I would not do that. Like I don't want to do that because like I know that if I have Bitcoin today, that if I hold on to it for the next ten years. I have the conviction that it's going to increase in price and so are other people who have studied it enough and who believe in it. So why the hell would I want to spend it if if in 10 years it's going to like the wealth that I have stored in Bitcoin is just going to grow so much more. So until then like I'm not going to spend it. But like let's say in 20 years when Bitcoin for example hypothetically went 100x or I don't know even more uh then I like these disincentives to spend it kind of go away because now I know that there's less room for Bitcoin's market capitalization to grow. Like it's not going to grow another 500x. It probably grow like another 10x or 5x or whatever. But it's going to take longer now, and it's going to like that. There's there's less room for growth. So now I, I'm kind of more incentivized to spend it. And also now that its market cap has risen so much and its size is so much bigger, that means there's less volatility, which which is an, a kind of a prerequisite for any medium of exchange to be as uh, little to have as little vol- volatility as possible because like you don't want to you don't want something you don't want to spend something today and tomorrow it either rises or drops tremendously in, in its value and by then there's going to be more people on the using bitcoin and like that's you see like you see there's a natural progression uh, for the adoption and monetization of any money so it's not like you wake up and everyone uses it as a store of value, as a medium of exchange, and everything else. Like it, it, there are specific steps that it first has to uh, undergo. Yeah, I, I thought it was valuable to for our listeners to know and to always uh, be aware of. Yeah, definitely. And I can almost hear the Keynesians shouting, "No, you shouldn't be. Uh, you shouldn't <laughs> be storing your money. You need to spend it. You need to stimulate growth in the economy." And I guess that that's the kind of interesting thing about Bitcoin that. Fiat monies as we know them are not efficient store of values because they lose their purchasing power over time. If you have a hundred grand in the bank account today, how much is that going to be worth in 10, 20 years time? Instead, the status quo or the norm is to put your money or to diversify your wealth into different assets like gold, bonds, stocks, real estate. And what happens when you have a sound money system that doesn't lose its purchasing power over time. Exactly, that's a great. Does all the money from all these investments flow into that? I definitely think. I definitely think that a portion of the the wealth that is currently stored in real estate and stocks will flow into Bitcoin because, like, right now in this world, people who who are wealthy they they have no incentive. They have very little incentive to hold that much cash on hand, like at any time, because, like, as we know, like ca- cash constantly increases in supply, whereas real estate or stocks are much better able to preserve wealth so like you know and it's kind of crazy to think about like so many so many people rich people buy apartments in different in like london or tokyo or new york and they don't even live in them like you know and the prices for the rent and the prices for these for this real estate they all increase but nobody lives in them because they are simply using them as uh, as stores of value which is not ideal because like why aren't are we supposed to, supposed to live in a world where anyone can just like earn money, uh, get their wage, be paid in something that just stores the, the fruits of their labor. Like, why, why, do, why does everyone have to suddenly become an expert in the stock market and the real estate market? Like, and the problem is that the people who 
don't have much wealth, and that's unfortunately the most of the world, they are not able to afford an apartment in some uh, big city that constantly at least or constantly increases in value or at least preserve preserves its value. So they're kind of just forced to be in this awful cycle, vicious cycle where they just lose they, they earn money and then uh, it loses its value and they can they are forced to work more and more and more and more. That, and Bitcoin changes that. For the first time, they can earn something and they can store their wealth into the future without worrying what is going to be the target inflation rate set by the Fed tomorrow at uh, the meeting uh, where the chairman is going to wear this color uh, of... The, you know, people are try, always trying to predict like what are what is going to be the 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 interest rate that they're going to set and all these things like, no, like these are so many, like uh, so many abstractions and so many layers that are just set on top of our economy and our understanding of how economics work, which are just absolutely most of the time unnecessary. Like if you think like, I just think personally, like I clearly studied uh, economics in college, but most of the time you just study Keynesian economics there, unfortunately, because that is the status quo uh, school of thought. But like to me, like Austrian economics makes so much more sense. It's just like by deduction, like you come to these conclusions, and they're so much more logical. Whereas, like in Keynesians, there are just so many layers on layers on top of like some kind of abstractions and formulas, and it's it's almost as if like they're just trying to like not get down to the reality of things and really you know expose what's going on and the fact that like. Somebody is benefiting on the cost of someone else. Yeah, well, that, that, that's my take on that. Yeah, Monsieur, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And maybe in a few hundred years' time, uh, our great and our, our great great grandchildren will look back and they'll uh, they'll be able to study about the battle, which was the Keynesian currency, which was fiat currency, versus the Austrian <laughs> economist point of view, which was Bitcoin. But uh, uh, I guess that's a tale for another day. But um, like I said, <laughs> let's let's just finish off with the quick fire Q and A section. Yeah. So, Monsieur, I've been following you for a while, and one question that I like to ask our guests okay. is, what awesome. is your most controversial thought? But I've been browsing your Twitter and your Medium, and I've picked out my own, and I think that your most controversial thought is a tweet that you once made, which was, five years into the blockchain and decentralization hype, and aside from Bitcoin, there is yet to be a useful product. Obviously, like I was going to say, what do you mean by this? It's quite self-explanatory, but do you not, do you still, are you one of those people that believes in Bitcoin, not blockchain? And you don't think that a blockchain or all these blockchain inspired systems that we have nowadays, can, do you think that they're inevitably doomed? So, uh, I, I don't necessarily think that everything that has to do with blockchain is like a scam or anything, but like it just so happens that almost 99, 99.9% of the things that in companies that try to somehow integrate a blockchain into into uh, what they do is, ju- is just an attempt to jump on this hype train and to really show off to the world that, hey, look at us, we are, we are also at, at the forefront of this technological breakthrough. Whereas like a blockchain, what blockchain really is, is just a glorified database. It's, a lot of people have already mentioned. Like it's an inefficient, slow uh, Excel spreadsheet that that like the costs of having a blockchain are huge. And like 
most of the times we don't actually need a blockchain. Most of the times centralized solutions work much better. It's only uh, the times when the the trust you can't really afford to trust somebody with certain things. And like money is essentially like I think the number one use case for something like this because like you can't trust anyone. Like the incentives to increase the supply of money are they're just huge. And anyone anyone who has the ability to do that would sooner or later kind of be uh, very much incentivized to actually finally do that because like that means that they can now afford more things, they can now pay for different uh, endeavors, etc., etc. But like that all comes at a huge cost. And that means that we can't trust any one single entity, any one single authority with, uh, with our money. Like money should be decentralized. And there is a huge incentive to decentralize money because people don't want to trust any single uh, point of failure, any single choke point. Uh, with something so important whereas with a lot of other things like why why do you need to have like you don't necessarily need to have your uh ev- everything that you take uh that you are trying to uh count or trying to uh have like data of on a blockchain because that just makes it inefficient and expensive and slow and i i just think that we, like and even when I'm sure there are use cases that are appropriate for using a blockchain. Like, for example, I guess like in the future, having a decentralized form of social media or Facebook that allows people to own their data and to really control what's going on with their identity, etc. Uh, like that might make sense in the future. But like even before any of this is possible, we need we need to have a uh, a unit of value. We need to have a form of money that is decentralized and that is sovereign and that allows for people to basically build on top of this uh economy of the internet you know yeah so that that, before we focus on anything else i think money is just a prerequisite yeah andreas antonopoulos speaks about that a lot he he makes the claim that a blockchain cannot exist without a native currency so the example is the Bitcoin blockchain and then BTC being the native currency of that blockchain. But um, yeah, okay. So the second question that I wanted to ask you is, who is the most interesting person that um, that you've met within this ecosystem? Obviously, you've, uh, you've got Murad as your brother. So that's, that's quite a good uh, person to have already met and spent a lot of time with. But uh, who else comes to mind? Oh wow, there's just so many people uh, that come to mind, but I guess like I always say that like most people are unable to appreciate Bitcoin because it 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 requires you to have a considerable understanding of various uh, disciplines because it's so interdisciplinary. You need to know a little bit of monetary economics, you need to know a little bit of computer science, cryptography, all these different things to really be able to have a considerable amount of conviction and to understand how it works. I think one of the, these few people is uh, Nick Zabo. I, I mean, I haven't met him, but I've read a lot of his work. And uh, I think that uh, he has done a great deal for, for the industry. And yeah, I think that would be the first. Okay, so this is a difficult one, depending on from which perspective you look at it from. But what is the most important company within the Bitcoin industry right now and that will help its rate of adoption? As such huh this is a good question well 
it depends it depends on the way you look at it because like there are different there are different things that make up bitcoin of course and it's like applications it's uh, second layer solutions it is uh sometimes exchanges and like i don't i don't think i would be able to name one but like for example some say that uh speculation is very important for bitcoin like for anything to establish itself as a uh as a as like a as an asset that can perform the, all these roles, like store value, et cetera, et cetera, people first have to speculate on it. So I guess some of uh, the exchanges that allow to do that are are quite quite important, even if we don't like the way they uh, operate oftentimes. Uh, and I think another company, I, I don't know if it's a company, but something that comes, yeah, I think it's, comes to mind is BTC Pay Server that allows for people to build uh, uh, their own... Uh, like, like for example, like a, a Patreon that is not controlled by a centralized party and that allows people to just, uh, like like instead of using BitPay, you can basically use a BTC Pay server. I think that's every, every, every company that is involved in uh, in the in Bitcoin or interested should definitely look into how that works. Yeah. Okay. What is been your favorite cryptocurrency or bitcoin based meetup or event that you've attended huh. uh well i I'll, I'll name a few so uh so the tone vase has organized uh the unconfiscatable conference for the first time uh this january in las vegas and i'm sure that this will become a annual tradition and it will only grow uh, the same way Bitcoin will grow, and it had had it was basically a Bitcoin not blockchain conference that had a great number of uh, amazing uh, panelists and discussions and uh, also workshops. It, it, it was a great time. There was a poker tournament. I didn't I didn't uh, participate in the poker tournament, but I listened to all the speakers, and it was very 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 interesting. Yeah, I watched. I actually watched some of it on YouTube, and it looked great. It was it was such an amazing like because like you usually go to when you go to like all these conferences you see all these people in suits from Wall Street and all these <laughs> it's just so tiring because like these people don't know anything and they're just there to to somehow save themselves from the wave of innovation that will most likely make most of them irrelevant but you know these people are actually like the people who were at the unconfiscatable conference they're actually truly passionate Bitcoiners and there was so much to learn from them. Also, a cool meetup is uh, one organized by Pierre Rochard in New York. Uh, I think it's called New York Bitcoiners, NYC Bitcoiners, if I'm not mistaken. And it's it's really fun. It happens every month and people just gather and just talk Bitcoin. Yep. Okay, cool. Well, for our New York listeners out there, I've also heard a few things about Pierre Rochard's famous meetup. So if you can, uh, if you can attend one day, I, uh, I recommend you do so. Um, Monsieur, is there anyone that you recommend that we should get on the show? Unfortunately, I haven't listened to every single episode. I have listened to quite a few of your episodes, and uh, all of them are great. But I uh, don't want to say anyone who has already probably might have been on the show. But uh, I think some of the interesting personas in the industry are would be Beautyon, uh, Vortex. Um, there are just so many. I, I, I can't even. <laughs> it's really hard to 
choose choose anyone in particular but there's like that i think that's the beauty of this industry <laughs> that there's so such a diverse group of people who are passionate about similar causes and not necessarily similar causes but like i think bitcoin has the ability to appeal to very different people in different ways because it's just like such a uh, net pos- it has such a net positive effect on the world undoubtedly yeah and just to finalize now a quick fun one I don't like to speculate too much and I like to focus on the fundamentals of cryptocurrencies and blockchain rather than focus on the price. But right, me too. in 365 days time, will the price of BTC be higher than what it is today? And normally I ask others the market cap of cryptocurrencies, but as you're a Bitcoin maximalist, I'll ask you the price of it. Um, yeah. Will the price of Bitcoin be higher in a year's time than it is today? So that would be 2020. March 2020. Uh, I think it will be higher. Okay, considerably? I think that's when like, the bull market should start to begin its... Uh, should embark on its journey at around 2020. So I think not, not considerably yet, but it will take off, uh, start to take off at that point. Fantastic. Well, Messiah, I'm not going to keep you... Uh... I'm not going to keep you here any longer. You should go and enjoy your Sunday. Um, And once again, thank you for taking the time to come and chat. I've really appreciated it. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. It was a great pleasure. Likewise, I I hope to be back uh, once again in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Messiah, definitely. I'll have you back anytime, man. Anytime that we can sit down and have a chat about Bitcoin, I'm all down for it. So uh, thank you, man. Have a great day. You too, man. Thank you.